Hello, and welcome to Montana Classical College. Today, we'll be discussing Ray Bradbury's book, Dandelion Wine. We'll look at chapters 21 through 30. Now, last time, we asked the following question. How do different types of people deal with the past? How should we harness the past in order to live well? As we turn to chapter 21, we find an unusually long chapter that shows Doug struggling to say goodbye to his friend John, quote, the only God living in the whole of Greentown, Illinois. Now, as we saw last time, difficulties are starting to mount up for Douglas. We saw that two of his favorite ways to get around town uh, were taken away from him, the green machine and the trolley. And now, much more importantly, he stands to lose his dearest friend. The day seems as if it will last forever. And quote, all of it was complete. Everything could be touched. Things stayed near. Things were at hand and would remain. End quote. And so we receive a picture of what we want. Perfection that is perpetual. It is a feeling of self-sufficiency or a sense that nothing is missing. That we are at home in the world and don't have to fear anything. Sadly, Bradbury shows us that nothing good lasts forever. Doug learns early in the day that his friend will be permanently moving that very night. One of the greatest sources of his happiness is ripped out of his world without him being able to do anything about it. John notices some interesting color on a neighbor's window pane that Doug insists has been there for years. And John exclaims, Doug, what was I doing all these years? I didn't see them. End quote. The obvious answer to this is having fun, being a boy. And we might add, sometimes we stop paying as much attention to a place the longer we are in it. Our mind creates a kind of map of the spaces that we are in, and we allow ourselves to rely on the map instead of actively directing our thought at a familiar environment. That something, that something like this could be true appears in what John next worries about. John implores Doug to make sure that he remembers what Doug looks like. Or rather, what John looks like. Doug thinks this is relatively simple. But John puts it to the test by asking Doug, what color are my eyes? Doug says they are brown, when really they turn out to be green. Which is to say, Doug doesn't even know, in a strict sense, what John looks like right now. That reminds me of what the contemporary psychologist Leonard Sachs says about a, dif about a difference on average between boys and girls. Namely, that boys tend to do things side by side. Their friendship first emerges in shared tasks, whereas girls often form their friendships face-to-face, -face, being more interested in learning about each other, uh, which would mean that, you know, you could say that Socrates' vision of political philosophy is almost, in a certain sense, more feminine by Sachs's definition. All he does is talk to people face-to-face -face about their souls or their opinions. Setting that aside, um, if something like this is true, Doug's and John's friendship might have been based more on running through the forest together rather than having personal conversations. And in that way, maybe John should have made a different request of Doug. Maybe he should have asked him to remember something that they had done together rather than what John looks like. However that may be, the boys try everything they can to slow down the passage of time, or at least their perception of it. They know that running makes the time feel as if it is passing quickly so they try to stay still. Doug tries setting his watch back. When they do play tag, Doug tries to permanently freeze John in place, 
They desperately seek to control time, but time is relentless and coldly indifferent to human concerns. At the end of the chapter, Doug almost wishes that human beings were statue-like or unmovable, that he sees that they cannot be like this. He rashly decides that John must be his enemy, for friends help us, or his enemies hurt us. And John's exit from Greentown is devastatingly hurtful to Doug. Doug assumes a stance of self-protection. He doesn't really think John is an enemy, but he can't think of a better way to manage his pain. This is understandable, but something that never flashes through Doug's head is, how does John feel? And so we turn to the next chapter, chapter 22. Now, in the previous set of chapters, as we've pointed out, Doug lost a number of things that he was in no position to do anything about. He couldn't stop John from leaving. He couldn't keep the trolley going uh, once the bus arrives. Now, he takes a proactive step to bring himself and his brother closer together as he asks him to, quote, stick around. And he even accepts Tom's request to be able to run around with Doug and his friends, even if it's embarrassing. This chapter ends with a striking observation by Doug, quote, it's not you I worry about. It's the way God runs the world, end quote. Recall that at the beginning of the book, Doug took God or some kind of divine thing to be something that looked out for him, that was provident. Also, the world looked slightly more pagan earlier in the book in that everything in it seemed to have a will of its own. Now, the world looks slightly more Christian insofar as we get a capital G God. Now, though, Doug doubts the justice of God. I wonder if it is a sense that God might be unjust that is a greater driver of doubt or disbelief in religion than it is the variety of religions that exist. That is, of course, the variety can cause doubts, but what seems more powerful to us is that the God of any one religion could punish one for believing in another religion that causes more doubt. That is, he would be unjust with such a punishment, and we cannot bring ourselves to believe in a God that is unjust. We could add as well that it appears that Doug's world is becoming more disenchanted. In an enchanted world, you can have adventures. Things happen. But now the things that take Doug to where he might have adventures or the people that he has adventures with, the excitement in the town is starting to leave. So we turn to chapter 23. Now, in the previous chapters we just saw, Doug came to wonder about God's justice. In this way, he blamed God for what had taken place rather than looking to other causes. That is, John's father got a better job in Milwaukee. Is this really a divine punishment? In the present chapter, we meet a somewhat paranoid woman named Mrs. Elmira Brown. She is prone to bouts of the most disappointing luck, and she blames this luck on a local woman, a witch, Mrs. Clara Goodwater. In both cases, a supernatural source is determined to be responsible for the difficulties that the characters face. Elmira Brown learns from her husband turned mailman that Goodwater is a witch, both because Goodwater told her husband this and, <clears throat> and because her husband is nosy and looked into the mail that he delivered to Goodwater. Not only this, but Mrs. Brown learns from a phone call that Goodwater claims to be a witch. Goodwater mentions this at a lunch that Mrs. Brown was not invited to. This lack of invitation hurts Mrs. Brown. Her greatest ambition is to become president of the Honeysuckle Ladies' Lodge. Sadly, 
Every year, Mrs. Brown nominated herself for president, but only received her own vote. Goodwater is the nearly unanimous president, this witch. Mrs. Brown goes to confront Mrs. Goodwater at her home and drags Tom with her. We have to ask the following question. Should we take seriously the possibility that Goodwater is a witch? Or should we think of her as a woman who likes to psychologically torture others who have an inferior intellect? I would propose that Goodwater is a woman of high intelligence who, like the young, loves a good practical joke. The biggest piece of evidence that she might be a witch rather than simply an intelligent woman, um, in addition to the books and statements she has made, is that she has a wax doll with tacks in it, presumably a smaller version of Mrs. Brown, that potentially gives her pain whenever it is harmed. That is taking a joke pretty far. But we never see Goodwater cast a spell. And we see that Mrs. Brown is a sensitive woman who is clumsy. She wants to outsource the cause of her clumsiness to an external source, rather than accepting that she might be the cause of her own misery. So she starts to overread details and sees a correspondence between Mrs. Goodwater's outward appearance of being a witch and her own wretched luck. Here are some things to consider. Um, First, the witch has great contempt for the intelligence of others. Perhaps this is part of what motivates her to, so to speak, troll others, to pretend to be a witch. She thinks others are stupid enough to fall for it, and she takes pleasure in proving their foolishness. Second, Mrs. Brown really wants to defeat Mrs. Goodwater. She says that she will take Tom with her, that is Douglas's brother, so that she can have, quote, goodness and innocence, end quote, on her side. Moreover, she herself resorts to witchcraft herself by going to the local library and then brewing a potion that she thinks will give her the advantage in running for club president. This leads to puking and falling down the stairs uh, at the voting location, which is to say she wants to rely on innocence and goodness, which is to say something like moral virtue on one hand, but yet she also turns to artificial help from witchcraft, meaning that she doesn't really believe that virtue by itself is enough to get the outcome she hopes for, or she doesn't believe in her own virtue hence why she needed to bring Tom as a kind of virtue therapy dog or something like that. So I wonder if witchcraft ends up being a metaphor for successful uh, exploitation of others. Mrs. Goodwater, Goodwater, the witch, feels great empathy for her bruised and puke-covered competitor and offers her the role of president. She uses her influence to sway the other women to agree. If the witchcraft as self-interested metaphor is right, then Mrs. Goodwater has learned something about herself, that she does care about others, even if they are stupid. But does Mrs. Brown learn anything in this chapter? It's hard to say. Now in the following chapter, a short one, chapter 24, Tom tells Doug about the events from the previous chapter, that is, about this witch story that he witnessed. And Doug is greatly excited he suffered many losses in the last few chapters. But now, but now the narrator says, Douglas peered out at the horizon where clouds filled the sky with the shapes of old gods and warriors. End quote. The world is re-enchanted and filled with adventure once again. Perhaps the existence of witches cannot fully compensate one for the loss of a friend. But Bradbury suggests that if we are patient and perceptive, 
new goods become available after previous ones fade away, which isn't to say that everything will turn out to be just as good or bad as before. One question that the chapter raises is, does one have to outgrow belief in witchcraft to move from being a child to an adult? A very different way to put something like the same question is, is the modern scientific frame of reference superior to the childlike or pagan frame that sees spirits in trees, etc.? Or, even if we say, duh, the scientific frame is better, we can still ask, are there any trade-offs in accepting this frame? Isn't there something sad about a child losing their ability to see the world in an enchanted way? And even in adults, isn't there a secret longing that we can find something enchanted somewhere else? say, in international travel. Some people say that portals exist. In the next chapter, we have a sad chapter on nobility, or the longing for more than mere existence, even if it risks death. The chapter begins with what at first appears to be another beautiful description of a summer day that slowly changes perspective until it turns out that a man that we met in our last recording, Colonel Freelay, uh, turns out to be the last apple to fall off the tree. And we suddenly realize that this is a dream that foreshadows his impending death. Colonel Freelay, due to a heart condition, has been denied the opportunity to tell his stories to the boys because it excites his heart too much. So too can he not have exciting phone conversations. He also has a difficult time moving around. So in a sense, he is more or less entombed in a room which at most he can banter with a nurse who will tell him that he cannot do any of the things that he wants to do. In some sense, he's almost like a child in that he has no authority over his life. And he's also like a child in that when he disobeys his parents' reasonable requests, like don't touch the hot stove, or in this case, don't have an exciting phone call that might uh, lead your heart to beat too fast and so you'll die, he will suffer painful consequences for disobeying. But he's unlike a child in that he knows full well what the cost to him will be if he does these kinds of things, which is death. And yet he undertakes such a task anyway. He calls his friend Jorge on the phone so that he can hear the beautiful and enchanting sounds of Mexico City. The nurse ends the call, but before she leaves, the colonel says about his discussions with the boys, it was worth it. I was alive. It doesn't matter if being so alive kills a man. It's better to have a quick fever every time, end quote, end quote. So the choice that the colonel lays out is this. Choice one, he can merely live, merely persist for the sake of existing. He can wake, eat, and wait. Or option two, shorten the length of existence in order to do what makes him feel truly alive. Alluding back to Douglas's discovery in our first lecture, um, uh, that he discovered that he felt alive at the outset of the book, but that he didn't really quite know what it means to be alive. It is paradoxical to say that what Mike, <clears throat> it is paradoxical to say that what might make one feel most alive is precisely what might lead one to their death. But nevertheless, this is how Colonel Freelate feels. He chooses option two. He chooses not merely to live, but to live well even though it comes at a steep cost. When the nurse leaves, he calls Jorge again, and he apparently also calls the boys, Douglas and his friends, to come hear him one last time. He lets the boys know that he really cares about them by doing this, 
But he also threatens to use an overused and maybe horrible word to traumatize them by having them find his cold, dead body. We can also say that just as Douglas was finding Greentown to be re-enchanted through witchcraft, he now finds himself dealing with yet more loss. Colonel Freely lived well, and he managed to die well. It is the kind of chapter that makes it difficult, though not impossible, to hold back tears. Now, a brief note of comparison with chapter three, or chapter 23. There, we saw Mrs. Brown, uh, that she said shortly before her trip to the women's election that she, quote, refused to die, which raises a big question. When should we cling to life with all that we have? And when is it cowardly to cling? How do we know when self-preservation should guide our thought and when nobility should guide it? Turning to chapter 26, a brief chapter, Tom is sitting on a Civil War cannon, and the weight of Colonel Freelay's death hits Doug. It strikes Doug that it is not only the colonel who has died, but that each person he told vivid stories about have also died with him. Doug believes that stories sustain the life the people, or it sustains the life of the people that they are about, that they offer some small measure of immortality to the dead. Um, Tom urges Doug to write the stories down. In this way, the colonel's efforts to preserve the stories of others stands a chance of being transmitted yet again. Doug agrees and runs off to do this. Tom pretends to shoot Doug with the cannon and complains that Doug doesn't pretend to die, as he had earlier in the chapter. In this way, Tom continues a theme from chapter 24. There, when he was asked if he believed in the witch's magic, Tom replied, Yes, I do. And, no, I don't. End quote. He's in a state of indecision or torn between conflicting opinions. Now we've seen in a certain sense that he's torn again. For on one hand, he urges Doug to write the colonel's stories down. And on the other, he insists that Doug continue to play a game that will distract or delay him from writing. In that sense, Doug does feel the weight of the colonel's death and of Doug's need, or sorry, Tom does feel the weight of the colonel's death and of Doug's need to write. And he also does not. Doug is undergoing the kinds of experiences that really pull one into a more adult frame of reference, while Tom, being younger, does not find himself moved yet in quite the same way. We now turn to chapter 27. There is a second harvest of dandelion wine, and it just so happens to yield 31 bottles, the number of days in July. And Doug sees the bottles as representing the days of the summer. He's disappointed that they are all uniform in color. Quote, he saw the other numbered bottles waiting there, one lying <clears throat> next to another, in no way different, all bright, all regular, all self-contained. So, all of the bottles look the same. But how can this be? Douglas thinks, as he looks at the previous month's bottles. Quote, there's the day I found I was alive, he thought, and why isn't it brighter than the others? Now, I'm less sure of this than when I was first reading the chapter, but this moment reminds me of Bradbury's uh, most famous book, Fahrenheit 451, of a character near the end named Granger, the book-memorizing dissident from the end of the book. So Granger offered the following paradox to Montag there. On one hand, he says, you, Montag, you're important because you have memorized the book of Ecclesiastes from the Bible. Only one other person knows it. So memorizing this sets you apart from other human beings. In other words, 
you're special. Yet, on the other hand, Granger also insists that no human being is more important than any other. He diminishes our sense of self-importance. To pull this back then into the world of dandelion wine, or Douglas as he looks on at these bottles, Douglas really wants to understand some days of his life as truly important and special, deserving of recognition. And in some sense, he craves some kind of divine recognition of this. The dandelion wine really should give an outward sign of how important that day was to Doug. The day that Doug found out that he was alive is important. Why doesn't the dandelion wine reflect this? The core problem here then for Doug is that he has placed himself at the center of the cosmos. The wine, which is for everyone in his household and for their friends, um, he takes to be as for and about himself. He doesn't think about what the wine might mean to others. Or he doesn't think, if a bottle was extra bright, what would my dad think of that? How would he interpret it? In the same way that he didn't really think about how does John feel about him leaving town? Doug only thinks how it matters or affects him. Perhaps then the bottles look all the same. Because if we zoom out of our own frame of reference and try to look at our own lives from afar, we aren't quite as important as we think that we are. And from that standpoint, each day is closer to being the same. Uh, we could also say that, you know, these are bottles of wine and they'll never really reflect what the days are to you. But um, I wonder if something that Bradbury could be pointing to, not that he necessarily has Thucydides in mind, but there's a moment in Thucydides that maybe helps spell out the thought that's here. Um, but Thucydides says that if you imagine Athens as completely depopulated and only saw its buildings, you'd believe that it was twice as powerful as it was. Conversely, a depopulated Sparta would appear half as powerful as it was. So Thucydides imagines how the two most powerful cities in his time will look like after everyone else is dead, which is to say he knows that they won't last forever. But one might say that the Athenians and the Spartans fight as if they can make their cities last forever. Because Thucydides can look at these cities in this way in his own time, that is looking at them from afar while being in them, he stands a better chance of seeing the world clearly. So you might say that Thucydides looks at these cities in the opposite way that Douglas looks at the bottles. And yet Thucydides still thinks that they're worth looking at. So there's a lot to say. But with that said, we should turn to chapter 28. Chapter 28 uh, is, is a wild chapter. Uh, this one details the friendship, or dare we say the romance, of William, Bill Forrester, and Helen Loomis over the course of the summer. Their relationship is unusual because Bill is 31 years old and Helen is 95 years old. Helen is one of the most philosophically sensitive characters in the book, and she raises a host of compelling questions. Bill is getting ice cream with Doug, and he settles on lime vanilla ice cream. Helen is intrigued by his decisiveness in ordering such an unusual flavor and asks Bill and Doug to join her. Bill begins the conversation in a remarkable way. He says, quote, I was in love with you once. What a thing to say. And strikingly, Helen isn't stunned or put off. Rather, she replies, quote, now that's the way I like a conversation to open, end quote. She comes to the site as daring, adventurous, and playful. Doug is present at the outset of the chapter. However, he disappears until the end. If the book is asking us to understand what the difference between a child and adult is, and if Doug is 
the main character of the book, then we have to wonder if Doug is able to absorb some of the same lessons that we are able to get out of the book. In other words, maybe some lessons are intended for Doug, but some lessons are more intended for the reader. But at any rate, Bill goes to Helen's extravagant house for tea, and Bill says that this is the first time he has ever been on time for an appointment. Evidently, this appointment means something to him. What does it say about a person if they're late to things all the time? Well, there must be multiple answers, but each would be telling. The parenthetical question is asked by Helen when she asks Bill why this is so, and he says, I don't know. The reasons put forward by Helen for inviting Bill over was so that she could explain what he meant, or so that he could explain what he meant about having been in love with her in the past, and so that Helen could explain the history of the town. They don't discuss these until much later in the summer, um, as they start to meet very often. The first topic of conversation proposed is more philosophic in character. As Helen asks Bill, what do you think of the world? It is a broad question. One could take it literally or metaphorically, and it provides the person who is asked room, in some sense, to take the conversation in any direction that they wish. Bill replies that he, quote, doesn't know anything. Helen offers a Socratic reply, the beginning of wisdom, as they say, uh, in response to him saying he knows nothing. In other words, awareness of our ignorance, knowing what it is that we don't know, is the indispensable starting point for seeking wisdom. Because if we already believe that we know something, what is the incentive for searching for it? Helen follows this up by suggesting that 17-year-olds believe that they know everything. If a 27-year-old also believes that they know everything, then they are spiritually a 17-year-old. They haven't grown up. Maturity would consist in being clear to ourselves about what we genuinely know in a strict sense and what we don't. And part of Bradbury's point in writing this book is to chasten us, to slap us in the face and make us realize that the world is more complicated than we think because we don't even take the time to look at it. When Bill compliments Helen's intelligence, she offers an astonishing reply, quote, it is the privilege of old people to seem to know everything, but it's an act and a mask, like every other act and mask. Between ourselves, we old ones wink at each other and smile, saying, how do you like my mask, my act, certainty, or sorry, my certainty, my certainty? Isn't life a play? Don't I play it well? End quote. Does she suggest that any certainty, any knowing, is always an act? That we pretend to know things, but all that it is ever, but all that that ever amounts to is playing or pretending. And that to do otherwise is in some sense to be an ignorant 17-year-old? In other words, she seems to stake a very skeptical position on the possibility of knowing anything in a strict sense. Helen tells Bill, that she traveled in many places in the world, but, she, but that she did so alone. Because she went to Paris alone, it felt to her to be similar to being in Greentown, because she was alone in both places. In this way, she seems to elevate love or companionship into the role of the greatest good a human being can pursue. This carries forward what we saw in chapter 7 and 18, namely that action is more important than knowing. Love is, in a way, an action or disposes us to act in certain ways toward the people that we love. Helen, and possibly Bradbury, seem to emphasize the importance of action over knowledge 
in part because they think knowledge of human things is so difficult to acquire, whereas anybody should be able to treat others well. Helen enjoys Bill's company and is surprised that he isn't married. He replies, let me put it this way. Women who act and think and speak like you are rare. In this minute utterance, hasn't Bill just laid out in a nutshell all of the capacities of a human being? Is there anything we are able to do that can't be placed in the categories of acting, thinking, and speaking? However this may be, Bill is seeking a woman who possesses an uncommonly perceptive mind, who is as philosophic or wise as Helen is. He seems to prize the mind above all else, though we can't forget that when we find out when he, uh, when he was in love with her in the past, years ago, he fell in love at first sight with a picture of hers uh, that was in the newspaper for when Helen was 20. So while he certainly emphasizes the woman's mind, that the woman, the a woman's mind is preeminent in his concerns, he wouldn't mind if she also happened to be beautiful uh, while she said smart things. Helen raises the question of the connection between the mind and the body in the following way. Quote, I've always known that the quality of love was the mind, even though the body sometimes refuses this knowledge. The body lives for itself. It lives only to feed and wait for the night. It's essentially nocturnal. But what of the mind which is born of the sun, William, and must spend thousands of hours of a lifetime awake and aware? Can you balance off the body? That pitiful, selfish thing of night against a whole lifetime of sun and intellect? I don't know. End quote. This quote is an expression of what I suppose contemporary philosophers would call mind-body dualism. Here, Helen seeks to propose a kind of radical separation of the mind and the body, and she ascribes moral qualities to each. The body is selfish and has a very narrow range of desires. It is striking that she doesn't mention sexual desire, since that is so commonly associated with the body. Um, does she make this claim precisely because she is old and her body is failing at precisely the moment in which she has met a man she thinks is perfect for her? Something like, you know, Kephlas from Plato's Republic, when he discusses uh, the joys of no longer feeling erotic longings. Um, now, another difficulty with her claim is that she ignores something innocent, like hand-holding. Isn't that an action that is pleasing to the body? and an expression of care directed by the mind at the other person, wouldn't holding hands somehow be an action that points to a connection between the soul and the body? There's more to say about this chapter. Um, it's highly interesting, but it seems best to come to a conclusion. Helen writes William a letter to be delivered after her death. He receives the envelope, but doesn't open it right away. Instead, he goes out for ice cream with Doug. He finally manages to open it, Time was standing still from his standpoint until he did so. But the reader is left wondering, what did Helen write? We turn then to chapter 29, and you can see from what we've talked about this time that the structure of the book is becoming a little bit more clear. It seems that it is made up of short stories, in a sense, that are all thematically linked and all obviously set in Greentown, set in the same universe or world, so to speak. One way that Bradbury holds them together is chapters like this one, chapter 29, that have Doug and Tom reflect on the most recent episodes together, like how chapter 26 offers a reflection on how to think about the colonel's death from chapter 25, etc. In light of the events of the previous chapter, Doug asks his brother 
if there are any happy endings anymore. Tom offers a remarkably serene answer. Quote, all I know is, I feel good going to bed nights, Doug. There's a happy ending once a day. Tom does not expect too much out of life and is gratified by small satisfactions. Doug, thinking Tom did not understand what he was referring to, emphatically tells Tom that he's talking about Mr. Forrester and Miss Loomis, Bill and Helen. Tom, who did in fact know what was at issue, says, nothing we can do. She's dead. This is a surprisingly philosophic response. Death is that which cannot be otherwise, so why worry too much about it? Helen was old. What would we have expected to happen, that she would live forever? In some sense, Tom's answer is infinitely reasonable, but it is an answer that we hate to hear. It's sort of like in Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing, uh, when Hero's father is pretending to be exorbitantly angry. His daughter has faked her death, and he is in on the scheme. And he tells his brother something to the effect of, even a philosopher can't do anything about a toothache. He compares the toothache to his grief, suggesting that in both cases, no matter how reasonable one is, they're bound to find their reason overwhelmed by the passions at some point. Um, at any rate, at this point in the reading, I was starting to wonder if Doug's fundamental insight into being alive that we learned about in chapter two is somehow being contrasted with Tom's fundamental insight into fear of death that we saw in chapter 10. Could it be the case that Doug is led to be overly hopeful for what we should expect out of human life by that experience, whereas Tom was led into a state of gratitude about any of the good things he's able to receive? That's hard to say. But sure enough, the lonely one who is first mentioned in chapter 10 is mentioned here at the end of this chapter, which means that Bradbury is confirming that we ought to be thinking back to chapter 10 when Doug learned uh, about fear of death being a kind of fundamental passion. But we could also say that learning about the lonely one here in chapter 29 sets us up to think about chapter 30, a very lengthy chapter. Chapter 30 begins with a sentence that declares that the courthouse clock chimed. Why does it begin this way? It seems like it could just be providing texture. It makes us imagine that we are in Greentown, getting another tour of its sights and sounds. But if we look back to the opening sentence after finishing the chapter, we see that it actually announces key themes in the chapter. As you might recall, way back in chapter 4, Bradbury introduced the difference between the ways of man and the ways of nature. A courthouse points us to law, one of the fundamental ways of man that differentiate us from what is natural. The main character in this chapter, Lavinia, is attacked by a man, the lonely one, which is to say, she is thrown outside of the realm of law, shortly after seeing a police officer near the end of the chapter as it happens, and into a horrifying situation where the use of deadly force is the only way to maintain one's existence. But this is to get ahead of ourselves a little bit. Lavinia and her friend Francine are on their way to the movies when they stumble upon the dead body of Elizabeth Ramsell. It is all the more eerie because they had just been talking about the alleged murders of the Lonely One shortly before this. Indeed, Francine didn't want to walk through this area precisely because of her fear of the Lonely One. This kind of coincidence tempts the mind to make a theological interpretation of events. Is it really just chance that the characters talked about a demonic being and then that they stumbled upon evidence of its work? They call the police, and Francine wants to go home. Lavinia forcefully rejects this idea 
and she displays the first of a number of bewildering attitudes toward the lonely one and her own safety. Her first attitude, quote, the show or the movie is what we need. We've got to forget this. It's not good to remember. If we went home now, we would remember. We'll go to the show as if nothing happened, end quote. In other words, dwelling on the terrible truth of this woman's death is an error. It is best to immediately escape consideration of it and dive into the world of a movie. They meet up with their friend Helen, and news has traveled quickly. As a brief aside, we could say that in a time before television and the internet, having a good relationship with your neighbors might be the only way to get very recent news quickly and somewhat reliably. Helen wonders whether or not they should be out tonight, and Lavinia now offers a new attitude towards the lonely one. This time, uh, her second attitude, the lonely one won't kill three ladies. There's safety in numbers, and besides, it's too soon. The killings always come a month separated. Here she offers two grounds for not fearing the lonely one. She, first of all, he can't possibly defeat three people at once, or the struggle would be too great and would draw attention from others. And he kills according to a well-regulated schedule. In other words, he will obey his own laws. And if he doesn't, we have numbers. This is a very different stance than just wishing to forget about the lonely one. The women are terribly frightened by Frank Dillon, who jumps out from behind a tree to scare them. This is reminiscent of To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, Harper Lee's book, when Jem and Scout walk through the dark to their evening school event and are scared by their friend Cecil Jacobs. But being scared by Cecil is a prelude to the real thing when Bob Ewell attacks them in the dark. In this case, Frank doesn't know that Lavinia and Francine have seen a body and so didn't realize how badly Francine would take it. And then obviously later on, it seems as if an attack does happen. So there's a kind of mirroring of they're almost being an attack, it's fine, and then the attack does indeed happen shortly later. Um, we then learn from the man who works at the drugstore that a stranger asked about Lavinia, including details about where she lives. It is brought out that Lavinia is the prettiest woman in town. The lonely one seems to be focusing on the most beautiful. At any rate, it appears as if the drugstore worker may have placed Lavinia in grave danger. As he appears here, he seems overly optimistic about human beings, or he is too trusting of a stranger. However, there is a dark suggestion in the next chapter that the drugstore worker is the lonely one. As the boys say in the next chapter, uh, referring to the dead body that was taken out of, out of Lavinia's house, quote, it didn't look like the lonely one at all. He looked like the candy butcher down front of the elite theater nights, end quote. Lavinia has a striking reaction to learning that a stranger has asked after her in the midst of the scare about the lonely one. Quote, this is a sort of third attitude she expresses. She felt nothing except perhaps the slightest prickle of excitement in her throat. Uh, and she reaffirms this feeling later on the page. Quote, there's all too little excitement in life, especially for a maiden lady, 33 years old. So don't you mind if I enjoy it? End quote. Originally, she wanted to avoid thinking about the lonely one. Then she decided that he isn't dangerous or that his danger is predictable. Now she feels excitement at the prospect of being his next target. Her latest feeling is probably a complicated interplay of multiple assumptions. On one hand, 
She's now the most beautiful woman in Greentown. And the most famous quasi-mythological figure of the town, the Lonely One, is interested in her. Now she is a main character in the history of her town, just as she is now a main character in the story. On the other hand, I wonder if she doesn't really believe that she is the target of the Lonely One. That is, that the logic of the reaction of reaction to above can still be applied. And so it is nice to be the most important person in town, especially if it can't lead to negative consequences on the basis of her thinking that uh, the lonely one isn't dangerous or that his dangerousness is regular uh, or you know it's when it's going to happen. A man who watches the description of the stranger or who matches the description of the stranger is in the theater and Lavinia's friend Helen screams and the movie briefly is stopped with an embarrassing scene being caused, a scene which Bradbury chooses not to show. This is our second scare, like the Frank Dillon one. Um, the women get sodas after the movie, but Francine and Helen are scared about the walk back. Lavinia adds uh, or makes a reply that sh shows a kind of fourth disposition or feeling towards uh, the lonely one. Quote, I'm not afraid of anything. The lonely one is a million miles away now. End quote. This is a stance at home with reaction two when she says uh, that he follows regular patterns. Um, and so she insists that he isn't here now. But she adds a new wrinkle when she insists that she isn't afraid of anything. How is such a thing possible? Even Achilles, we might say, fears death. death. Uh, even Beowulf fears dying badly. We might say then, Lavinia is boasting or insisting that she is more than she is. We see indeed that this is a boast once she has walked her other friends home, insofar as she does find herself terrified as she runs back to her house. Lavinia refuses her friend's reasonable offers that she stay with them for the night uh, uh, in order to go home in the morning. And here we see a sort of fifth reaction. Indeed, she is so confident that she says, and uh, I'll tell you I'm safe, yes, in the morning. And tomorrow we'll have a picnic lunch at Electric Park with ham sandwiches. I'll make myself. How's that? You'll see. I'll live forever. End quote. She offers her most outrageous claim yet. I don't think that there is any reason to take her position. Literally, it is obviously an exaggeration. Nevertheless, it is a strange expression of confidence, where one, and one wonders, what is the ground of her confidence? Confidence, we could say, is often good, but why is she confident? When Helen tells Lavinia that she's acting strange, as if she has a wish to die, Lavinia offers a striking response which expresses her evolving attitude towards the lonely one. Quote, I'm just not afraid. And I'm curious, I suppose. And I'm using my head. Logically, the lonely one can't be around. The police and all. And she adds a moment later a strikingly contradictory statement. Quote, let's just say I'm enjoying myself precariously, but safely. If there was any real chance of anything happening to me, I'd stay here with you. You can be sure of that, end quote. So this would be sort of like a sixth stance towards the lonely one. So what changes in this stance? She's not afraid. Why? Again, the lonely one is far away and wouldn't risk murdering again so soon in light of increased police presence. But isn't she assuming that the lonely one is just like her or like a normal person? Most people are afraid of incarceration, but the lonely one isn't a normal guy. 
The key contradiction, though, is that she is both precarious, as she says, and safe. If the lonely one is far away, how can the situation be precarious? Wouldn't it simply be safe? And if the situation is precarious or dangerous, then how can she be said to be using her head, which is to say being rational, which in her view means being safe? To be rational is to think in non-contradictory terms, but precariousness and safety are opposed. Is there any way to make sense of Lavinia's views? To be as charitable as possible to her, we might say that the situation is precarious from the point of view of those who are superstitious or unreasonable. To a person like Lavinia, who does, she thinks, actually use her head, the situation is safe. What she is curious about then would be something like this. What is all the noise about? But if, or to the extent that she is curious, doesn't she have to be open to the possibility that something is making noise? She can establish her superiority over everyone else by being out when they aren't, and her actions will demonstrate the foolishness of everybody else. However this may be, Lavinia walks Helen home and rejects the opportunity to stay with her. She turns to go home and encounters a police officer singing an innocent song that cannot but be interpreted as haunting under the circumstances. He sings, Oh, give me a June night, the moonlight, and you... Now imagine, you know, you're really terrified. and uh, There's a man who kills beautiful girls. Uh, you could imagine this would be terrifying, and so it is. Uh, whereas during the daylight, it might seem kind of charming. But at any rate, he offers to walk her home, and she prudently insists that she doesn't know who the lonely one is. She can't afford to trust anyone, and so she rejects his offer. Walking with him is a risk, and not walking with him is a risk. It's a difficult dilemma. She walks toward the ravine, and the world, and quote, the world was gone behind. The world of safe people in bed, the locked doors, the town. Her heart exploded in her. The sound of the terrified beating filled the universe. In her subjective experience, she has exited the ways of man, which the world of the town represents, and has descended into the darkness of the ways of the natural world. Law doesn't apply here. She has left its symbol, the police officer, behind. She feels deeply alone and finds within this dark solitude an entire universe. In this cosmos or whole, anything can happen. The crickets are listening to her. It felt as if music was playing for her. She almost experiences herself, again, as the main character in a kind of movie. A movie where nothing happens unless it happens to her. This is what it means to be in a world or universe without anyone else. Danger centers our perception completely on ourselves. She exhibits now what we might think of as a seventh disposition towards the lonely one. Quote, or not quote yet. <laughs> she feels as if the lonely one really is close by. And so, full of despair, she turns to the final resource that seems available to her, since she has pushed her friends and the law away in her attempt to rely on reason alone. She turns to prayer. Quote, oh God, please let me be safe. If I get home safe, I'll never go out alone. I was a fool. Let me admit it. I was a fool. Having turned down human assistance that might have spared her from this terror, she turns to supernatural guidance and promises to act better in, in the future in exchange for divine assistance in the present moment. She gets home and thanks God. Her prayers have been answered. 
But now that she is free from terror, uh, now that the door has been locked, she sets aside her pious response to the lonely one and returns to unassisted human reason. Quote, and this might be an eighth or an eighth disposition or a return to an earlier one. Quote, she got her breath and almost laughed at herself. It stands to reason if a man had been following me, he'd have caught me. It turns out that the ravine's as safe as any place, end quote. She thinks of herself as a fool. She'd wanted, she had wanted to prove that she was reasonable, that the world was disenchanted, and that nothing like the lonely one existed. The darkness in her imagination had briefly fooled her into thinking the lonely one was real. Now she realizes that reason would suggest that the ravine is no different than anywhere else. Her mind had just foolishly been tricked um, and made it seem or appear as if it was different, as if it was dangerous, as if it was enchanted. And then she discovers a man clearing his throat in her house. And that's how the chapter ends. Uh, we'll finish the book in our fourth lecture on Dandelion Wine. Uh, Brian Wilson out.